one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This episode is very special in that this is our 200th episode. Wrap your heads around that, folks. 200 episodes of Talking Space. And boy, is 200 going to be one heck of a good episode. And joining us is the original Talking Space team, which includes Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. I am still trying to wrap my head around that 200 episodes, but uh, indeed, we've got something very, very special for you, so so stay tuned. Oh, yes. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I'm ready to go and most, most happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, glad to have you here and glad to also have with us Gina Hurley. Tremendously excited for tonight's interview. Cannot wait. Oh, yes, indeed. And tonight's interview is quite a special one. We've got another astronaut, but... In addition to his spaceflight career, he is a decorated pilot with the U.S. Marine Corps, flying more than 500 combat missions during the Vietnam War, logging 4,500 hours of flight time, including 3,500 in jets. When it came to spaceflight, he logged 237 hours in space aboard two space shuttle missions, STS-29 and STS-38. In addition, he did a lot of other work with NASA, helping out with robotics programs, before moving on to Boeing to help out with the International Space Station as well as the Space Shuttle program. Currently, he is with the Kennedy Space Center Education Foundation, and you can see him talking all the time down at the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex. But if you want to listen to him talking tonight, the only place is Talking Space. So please welcome to Talking Space, astronaut Bob Springer. Well, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So to get things started, obviously we know about your astronaut career, but a lot of people may not know about your military career beforehand, and you had quite the distinguished career with the number of airplanes that you flew and dealing with the Top Gun program and everything. Personal question for me is, of all the different planes that you flew, what was your favorite? Oh, it has to be the uh, the F-4 Phantom. Uh, I, I probably have more flight time in that aircraft, uh, close to 2,000 hours, and uh, uh, a absolutely phenomenal airplane. I, I flew it in combat uh, and then went back and uh, actually got an extensive bit of time in it as a test pilot as well. So uh, uh, very familiar with the aircraft. And uh, at the, in its day, it was, of course, the, uh, uh, the hottest thing out there. And, uh, and that's, that's what every fighter pilot wants to fly is, uh, you know, the latest, greatest, uh, whatever it is. And, uh, and, and that, that had to be it for me. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, you flew a wide variety, and that's, of course, you know, always the, the fun one is the F-4. But, um, I, I mean, just some of the other ones that you flew there, Huey is an interesting one. Yeah, I had, I had a chance to bounce back. That was one of the advantages of, uh, of being in the Marine Corps, quite honestly, is that uh, it was enhancing to your career to 
fly a variety of different types of aircraft, uh, given that uh, the Marine Corps is a composite force in arms. And, uh, you know, you start out as an infantry officer, and I, then I had a chance to go into aviation, flew jets for a while, uh, flew helicopters, went back and forth uh, between the, uh, the two programs several times, as a matter of fact. Uh, and it, uh, it was very, very rewarding, and uh, there's not any part of it that I, I regret doing. And one of the things I think that actually helped me as I uh, eventually got to the point where I applied for the astronaut program, the diversity of background, I think, was actually uh, very, very much in my favor. The, the combination of the combat uh, flying that I did, uh, as you mentioned, uh, 300 uh, uh, missions in F-4s and another 200-plus in, uh, in helicopters. Um, the, the, the combination of the combat experience and the diversity uh, was, uh, I think, uh, very, very favorable when I uh, applied for the astronaut program. Sir, Chief McCulky here. First off, I want to say thank you for uh, spending some time with us tonight on Talking Space. Uh, with flight in general, was this something that you just kind of gravitated toward as a as a child, or, or how did you really just how did the flight bug bite you? Basically, when I was a uh, when I was a youngster, I, I was always fascinated by uh, by aviation. Uh, you know, uh, given the time that I grew up and all that, uh, uh, just read a lot about the particularly the uh, the World War II uh, aviators and uh, and the kinds of things that they did, and it just I was just fascinated by it, and, and I was the, the kid, you know, that, that went out to the little hometown airport, and, and uh, I grew up in a small town, Ohio, and went out there and, you know, I just hung around and uh, would do anything I could to get uh, get somebody to take me for a ride, and uh, and eventually that all came together for me, uh, you know, got to go to the Naval Academy, and then got accepted into uh, flight training, and, and it just uh, just all kind of came together. And it's, uh, it's one of the things that I like to talk about when I speak to young people. The, the point I try and accentuate is, you know, you, you got to love what you're doing. And, uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I mean, you, you rose to the pinnacle of, of what, a, uh, <laughs> what any pilot would love to do. I mean, uh, you know, you go into, uh, went over to Pax River and, and graduated Top Gun. I mean, wow, that, that was the first off. Uh, that, that's amazing. How did the, the path lead from, from Pax River over to a, uh, a seat in the cockpit on the shuttle? Uh, was, it, was it just sort of a, a natural progression or was it just something that, uh, that you always had in the back of your, back of your mind to, to possibly uh, go a little higher and faster? No, actually, uh, that's that's a great question, and uh, and I get asked it quite frequently. As as a matter of fact, uh, particularly by young people who who are interested in those kinds of things, and and again, it, it fits in with the philosophy that I like to talk about is that you uh, sometimes uh, you know you look back at uh, the things that happen in your career and your life, and and uh, and you just see where things tend to uh, to line up in a particular area. And I'm always honest about it. I said, you know. Uh, when did I start thinking about going into the uh, astronaut program? And it's when they opened up the application for the shuttle astronauts. I, I was you know, in my 30s, uh, mid-30s when that happened. And, but I looked back at my career and said, well, you know, I've got a graduate uh, degree in, in engineering. I've got the test pilot background. I've got the flight hours. And I, I really enjoyed uh, the combination as a test pilot of being able to not only do the flying, 
but do the engineering aspect of it because the when you get through with the Navy test pilot school, you're designated uh, an engineering test pilot, and and there's a huge emphasis on the engineering aspect. Of it. And of course, anybody who has followed the shuttle program uh, knows full well that a huge part of what we did with the shuttle was uh, was the engineering aspects and and all the things that went into to make that beautiful flying machine so fantastic and so successful. You have such an amazing aviation background. Um, how was it that you became a mission specialist and not a pilot of the space shuttle? Well, actually, the, that, that was, uh, and I, again, being honest with you on that, uh, when I found out that I had been selected as a mission specialist, uh, I was a little disappointed. Uh, you know, as, as a pilot, I, I uh, had hoped to be uh, selected as a pilot, and, and I, I applied in both categories. What I was uh, was told, and I, I think was absolutely the truth, is that they NASA wanted some cross pollinization, if you will, to to take uh, people who had the military flying experience and and integrate them with the more uh, of the what I call the science community, if you will, the uh, and uh, and. Each of us brought something unique to the uh, to the table, and of course, I'm I'm not alone in that category. There are a number number of us that were uh, primarily pilots, but had uh, advanced technical degrees and were selected uh, as as mission specialists and flew as mission specialists. And as it turned out, uh, it was uh, from my standpoint very very rewarding because you you know you got to do virtually everything uh, in my case uh, in, in addition to everything else you know got to train for the the spacewalks and uh, and and that it was a, a reward in itself and uh, and you feel an integral part of the team so i i never never look back on that uh, in a negative way it was a, a unique opportunity and i think under, you know again understanding what nasa was looking for at that period of time to uh, to bring uh, some of the military guys into the uh, mission specialist side of it, uh, I think, was uh, an important factor. So you're talking, obviously, about, you know, being a mission specialist instead of a pilot. Looking at the class of astronauts who you joined with in 1980 and 1981, it's it's a heck of a class. You know, obviously, you've got big names like Charlie Bolden and Jerry Ross. And how has the connection been with you and your class even still to this day? Well, I, uh, you know, very close association uh, with... with uh, uh, with some of the folks, uh, the, the, the people that I flew with, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Blaha, who is one of my classmates, uh, I, I get together with him frequently, and uh, it, it's a, you know, that was such a unique opportunity to, uh, as a individual and then as a a group flying together, uh, and it's something that gets lost, you know, I, I, as an engineering. You know, my background's in engineering as, as far as my, my technical degrees and all that. And it, it's easy to get caught up in the engineering uh, side of things and, and all the things that went into that. But uh, an equally important part of it is the teamwork that evolves. And it's, it's not just the crew in the cockpit, but it's uh, everybody who participates in the program, you know, the, the designers, the testers, the maintainers, uh, the planners, uh, so many different people that that participated in the program, and, and when you take a step away from it and you look at the incredible team that was put together, and and to this day, it again, it's not just the folks that were in the astronaut office; it's everybody who worked on the program uh, played a critical role, and and you can't 
you can't overlook that. It's just such a, a fascinating part of it. And and I have as many friends that uh, you know that were not astronauts, but were were part of that fantastic team that. Uh, uh, that that put the shuttle in, in orbit and kept it flying and and had such a successful record. Uh, every person that that was involved in it is just was so key and and it re again really really emphasizes the teamwork and and that's something I love to talk about again to the to the young people when I get a chance to uh, uh, to tell them about the fascinating parts of the program. As you were preparing for your first flight as an astronaut and learning about the shuttle. Were there was there anything about the shuttle as far as engineering the the systems the operation of the orbiter that surprised you based on your prior experience with with all kinds of aircraft? Yeah, Mark, there there was uh, to a certain extent. Um, I've always been been fascinated by the incredible complexity and uh, and and how we dealt with that. Just round numbers. You're you're talking about a a composite vehicle that had two and a half million parts all, all flying together in close formation uh, and how that all comes together and, and it actually it has to do a little bit with my uh, with my graduate field of study because I did a lot of work in uh, in probability statistics and reliability end of things and uh, you know if you ever did a, a traditional reliability study of the orbiter you'd never flown it I mean it just uh, from a reliability standpoint just because of the way the numbers crunch together, uh, the overall reliability from a traditional reliability standpoint was terrible. And, and we overcame that by having what we called our redundancy management system, the backups uh, systems that we had. And, you know, I, I think everybody's familiar with the fact that for our critical components, we actually had three levels of, of backup. And, and how that all worked together and, and a brilliant scheme to overcome the, the deficiency, if you will, in the, the reliability of that many parts and, and to put together a machine that was uh, ultimately, uh, when you looked at it in terms of, of how it flew and, and how it responded and you were able to overcome uh, the, the failures that occurred and, and I think everybody is well aware that every flight we flew, we had multiple failures uh, and it rarely perturbed the mission because of that really, really thoroughly developed uh, redundancy management system that we had that, that uh, allowed us to uh, continue to operate even when parts failed. And, and that was phenomenal. Talking about redundancy management, how big a part of that uh, in flight was the uh, ground support? Oh, that was, that was a critical uh, part of it. Uh, I, I sometimes use the example, uh, you know, we had a, uh, on my first flight, we, we had a, a failure early on during the ascent uh, uh, phase. And, and you know, in the less than the time it's going to take me to tell you about it, we determined a potential problem in flight, called back to mission control in Houston, uh, confirmed that, uh, that what we saw in flight was actually happening. Uh, they determined that the system was likely going to fail and we executed an emergency procedure. And, and, you know, that all occurs after you've lifted off a 5 million pound vehicle with 7 million pounds of thrust. You're pushed back into your seat with three times the force of gravity, a tremendous vibration, a lot of things happening in the cockpit. But again, 
that redundancy management system, the teamwork that was involved with, with being able to confirm what was going on and, and make a very rapid decision, and then the skill of the people in the, in the vehicle itself that uh, were able to execute the emergency procedures, uh, something we had trained over and over and over, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours inside the trainer, uh, being prepared to handle those kinds of things. Uh, it, it just highlights how phenomenal that whole program was. I, I, you know, uh, I know there are some people that uh, sometimes badmouth the, uh, the, the orbiter program, the shuttle program, and I'm going, you know, you don't understand it if, you, if you're going to really run it down. You really don't understand it. One of the things that you did talk about was indeed teamwork. And NASA itself has demonstrated that a lot of its technology is born out of that teamwork. And, and you seem to be, again, a, a huge cheerleader and a huge you know, advocate of, of, of that kind of approach. How do you go ahead and, and port that into not just for STEM-related things, but also in, in just in everyday life and in, and in business? Uh, one of the things that, that I try to go ahead and, uh, as, a, as a newly minted uh, project manager here, I, I try to go ahead and try to foster, foster teamwork. Do you have any tips as far as getting that teamwork percolating and going? Yeah, I, I do. You know, and, and uh, I was very, very fortunate when I, uh, when I left the uh, uh, astronaut program, uh, I ended up uh, working for the Boeing company uh, as an executive for the company. And I, I took the lessons that I had learned uh, from NASA, from the military, and, and uh, was able to uh, apply that uh, to the kind of work. And I, I worked in the basically in the space program for the uh, Boeing. I was a program manager on the uh, International Space Station. Later on, was the uh, program manager for the uh, shuttle in Houston, and uh, then there worked some advanced programs for uh, for Boeing. And and one of the things that uh, you know you really had, and I, and I stress this with the uh, the, the people that I work with at Boeing, again, a, a fine, fine team of people. Uh, and, and the key to doing that is to have a common goal, you know, to, to recognize uh, what it is you're working towards. And I was very, very fortunate with the shuttle program, it was really obvious. You know, what were we working for? Safe flights, you know, getting, getting the, the orbiter off the, off the deck uh, up into space and, and recovering successfully and, and accomplishing the mission. And uh, to, to be able to take that into an industry or, you know, related uh, field and, and, and use those same kinds of things. And, and there are conflicts out there. And I'll give you a trivial example. You know, sometimes you'll run into a system where, you know, the engineering department, uh, of course, wants to come up with the ultimate engineering decision. And, and the finance department says, oh, that's great, but, you know, we've only got X, X number of dollars to do it. And what you really need to do is, is get those two groups together and understand what the goal is and then focus on that common goal. Uh, yes, it's a, a restricted budget. Yes, you want to have the very, very best engineering, the very, very best product. How do you bring those things together and get the team as a whole to recognize the direction that you're going and what you're trying to accomplish? Again, a common goal that everybody can understand and then work towards that goal. And I, I, I was very, very successful with that uh, in my business career with Boeing. Just, again, space systems analysis, you have to, have to keep plugging. One of the things that, that you did talk about was the engineering aspects of, of some things. And one of your first assignments was the 
I think it was uh, it did some work with the remote manipulator system or or, or Canada Arm, uh, getting it ready for STS three. Could you kind of expound on, on what you did with that? Yeah, that was uh, that was a great opportunity. Uh, uh, something most people don't understand is, uh, as we refer to it, flying the arm is is much like flying a craft, a spacecraft or an aircraft or whatever. The uh, the dynamics and all that that were involved with it uh, were. Uh, were very, very similar. Uh, so some real, real engineering challenges uh, worked very, very closely with our uh, uh, compatriots in, uh, up in Spar Aerospace and just outside of uh, Toronto. Uh, spent countless days up there uh, doing the uh, eval technical evaluation and the testing of the Canada Arm. Uh, and uh, again, it was a good example of the teamwork, uh, but applying the same aerodynamic principles that you would for an aircraft or a spacecraft uh, and being able to uh, uh, apply that to the arm and then understand uh, some of the constraints that you are working with. It was a, it was a great uh, introduction to uh, not only the, uh, the technical details of the engineering of anything that's associated with the space program, uh, but something that I truly enjoyed was the international aspect of it. And uh, today, you know, you, you see that we have uh, the International Space Station, and I continue to talk to people about the space station, uh, and I said, I continue to reinforce the idea that perhaps the greatest single achievement of that is international, 16 different countries, uh, five different space agencies that have worked together to, to put that fantastic uh, orbiting laboratory up there in space. And, uh, and I, I reflect back on that, that uh, you know, I learned some of uh, that international cooperation working with uh, uh, the Canadian Space Agency and the Canadian government on developing the, uh, the arm. Yeah, because I've talked to a couple of people who have "quote unquote" flown Canada Arm, and it, it, it's a heck of an achievement to get something like that to be able to just so nimbly move things around in space. Oh, it's ab absolutely incredible. We we had some uh, some severe problems to uh, uh, to overcome uh, just because of some of the failure modes that were associated with it, and and you're moving large masses uh, in close proximity to the orbiter, and of course, eventually uh, with the space station up there. Uh, and, and to be able to develop the, uh, the fine controls, uh, you know, and uh, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of technique that went into that. And of course, we learned that. Uh, and I was again very very fortunate to be able to do the testing. We did what we called flat floor testing, uh, being able to isolate uh, two degrees of freedom for the arm and uh, and take it through all its maneuvers and and work out. Uh, what was going to work and what wasn't, what we had to change, and and there were a lot of uh, a lot of things that, that were changed about the arm early on in the program uh, to to make it as uh, the exceptional piece of equipment that uh, that it, it was there uh, and still is on the International Space Station. Because we still use a variant of the arm up there uh, uh, on the space station. Yeah, a variant that can basically move itself around the station, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that, that yeah. How that takes place is just uh, you look at it and it's oh my gosh you know does that really <laughs> can you really do that and yeah you really can exactly uh, so getting into your spaceflight experience now your first um, well your first mission was supposed to be STS 61H in mid 1986 but obviously for reasons that most space enthusiasts know that didn't happen what was it like leading up to STS 61H and then the sudden halt. Well, actually, uh, to be, you know, got to go back a little bit farther. Uh, I, I was originally assigned a, a flight in 83, and it was uh, 
I forget the STS designation of it now, but it was uh, the Earth Observation Mission 1. Uh, Vance Brand was going to be the uh, commander. Mike Smith was uh, to be the pilot. Uh, um, we had uh, myself uh, and, uh, among others, uh, Claude Nicolier, uh, one of the first ESA astronauts, uh, was going to be on that flight. And it was largely a uh, European mission. And uh, sadly enough, it was one of those flights that uh, funded by the European Space Agency. And, and at some point in time, they didn't have the funds. And so that flight was canceled. So we tumbled from there into uh, uh, they, they, you know, you went back in the crew and into the queue of things and got uh, reassigned. And that's when I got uh, uh, assigned to 61H. And it was an interesting thing, from, particularly from my perspective, because as we were going through that training and uh, uh, had worked together as a uh, crew for a fairly intensive period of time and, and would have been would have flown uh, shortly after 51L. Of course, when the when the Challenger accident happened, uh, everything was grounded. We were the one crew that was kept intact, and the only crew that was kept intact. Mike Coates is the commander. Uh, John Blaha is a pilot. Uh, Jim Buckley, uh, myself, and Jim Bajan were the uh, were the five crew members, and we were the only assigned crew. For almost two years, and uh, and and went through and and uh, part of our responsibility as the uh, as the only assigned crew is that we did all of the testing of the over 200 major modifications that we made to the system as we were getting ready for return to flight. Uh, since you were a veteran of the early space shuttle program and certainly active uh, through the 80s, can you give us just a little snapshot of what it was like? Uh, during the time of the Challenger accident, Mike Smith, who you mentioned you were assigned uh, on an earlier crew with him. He was one of your classmates. This obviously must have hit home. Where were you that day? Who were you with? Were you with the astronauts' families? Can you share any of that with us? I sure can. Um, as it turns out, uh, Mike was also my best friend in the program. When, when we were both selected, we were both in the Virginia Beach area. He was in the Navy, of course, uh, uh, Navy pilot. I was in the Marine Corps, uh, but we were in the same area. Turns out uh, we ended up uh, living about three houses from each other in, in, uh, in one of the neighborhoods there in, in the Clear Lake area, and, uh, and the families were very, very close together. So it was a very, very intense personal loss. Um, you know, with uh, working with his family, with uh, with Jane Smith and uh, and their three kids, uh, I had three children that were actually the same age as, as Mike's three kids, and uh, it, it was a a very hard time, very very difficult to to deal with. I, and I think as you reflect back on it uh, to this day, though, I'm still proud of of what that NASA community was was able to do. Uh, to support the families, to rally together. Uh, nobody quit, nobody gave up, and we persevered and, and put the pieces back together, and, uh, and 30 months later, uh, we're back in space. Uh, it, it was a phenomenal time, as, as hard as it was to deal with it, both, uh, uh, in my case, uh, very much so from a personal basis. Uh, um, very, very tough, very, uh, very intense uh, personal feelings and something you you don't ever forget about. Uh, again, very very closely associated with that, uh, being such a uh, a close friend of uh, of Mike's, uh, and and of course knew the rest of the crew and had worked with the crew. Uh, Judy Resnick and I had actually worked together on some of the Canada Arm things, uh, kind of close with the, with that whole crew. So it was a very very emotional time, I think, 
uh, for all of us and, and certainly for me personally. So you mentioned that you were the only crew that was still kept intact. Do you know why that was? Well, we were the next ones up. Uh, we were the, the most trained, and uh, um, the only uh, negative aspect of that was that uh, we all kind of assumed that we would get the return to flight mission, and, and we didn't. Uh, and that was uh, that was a little disappointing. I uh, I really thought that you know my gosh here we are you know we we uh, we started out after the uh, after the accident uh, we got in the simulator and and flew that uh, the uh, 25L profile and and uh, to help understand uh, as much as we could about what happened during the flight. Uh, oh, I was in some gut wrenching times to to fly that that same. 70 seconds over and over and over again and, and uh, trying to figure out uh, what took place and, uh, you know, and then to be part of the kind of recovery action of, of, uh, of checking out all the, uh, like I said, over 200 major enhancements that were put into the vehicle uh, to improve safety as we did the return to flight. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, I'm, I'm not much of a political animal, so I, I think there are probably people who knew more about it than I did. But uh, I've got to admit, I was surprised when uh, when our crew was not the return to flight crew. They put together a, a whole new crew, and uh, and that's the way it happened. When you're in that simulator, still with your crew, working out all of these, reliving the same 73 seconds or however long, how much pressure was there on you guys knowing what you were doing and that essentially the continuation of the space shuttle program was on your shoulders? Well, again, I, I don't think any of us felt any... Uh, undue pressure from that standpoint, and it goes back to what, I'm talk what we talked about earlier on was the the whole team effort. You were just part of the team that was going to solve that problem, and and you wanted to do everything your professional best uh, in every aspect uh, of that uh, iteration to to make sure that you you chase down any details, uh, uh, whether you thought they were relevant or not, you, you just you look for every single thing that, that came along and, and that might have an impact on, on what happened in the, in the cockpit and, uh, and then uh, you know, dedicate yourself to, to trying to uh, come up with the fixes. I, as it turns out, I was also, uh, at, at that time, we all had, of course, uh, duties assigned outside of the, uh, uh, the training scenario, and uh, I was assigned uh, the responsibility for the astronaut office to track the return to flight uh, for the orbiter. Uh, I, I went through and, and sat in on the engineering councils, and uh, well, I spent countless, uh, countless days and, and nights at uh, out at uh, Rockwell and Downey uh, as, as part of the team that was uh, uh, doing all the design certification review for return to flight. So intimately involved with all the engineering changes, uh, and and again, it highlights the aspect of uh, of the combination of things, uh, not only having the flight experience but having the engineering background uh, that made you a, a, a key player in, the, in all the decisions that were being made. So it had to be rewarding for the entire team then seeing STS-26 and knowing that STS-29 was coming up with your team again. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, uh, we, we were fortunate. We, we got right back in the queue there and, uh, and of course, uh, you know, as those things work out, uh, our our payload was exactly what uh, STS uh, uh, 25 was uh, was carrying. We we carried a Tedris satellite. You know, as you went through that whole training iteration and all that, those things did weigh on your mind from time to time.
So, Bob, let's let's talk a little bit about about STS twenty nine, your first uh, your first flight. Uh, first, could you talk a little bit about your duties on on that particular mission? What what your uh, what your uh, your assigned uh, uh, purpose was on the flight? You know, as a, as a mission specialist, uh, we all had uh, assigned duties, and of course, there was uh, a lot of cross training that went in. But uh, uh, my primary responsibility, uh, I was. Uh, uh, although we didn't use the, the term at the time, but I was essentially the mission commander in that uh, I had prime responsibility uh, for our primary payload, uh, the tracking data relay satellite that we were uh, going to deploy on orbit. And then uh, each of us had uh, individual responsibilities for different experiments. I was very fortunate. Uh, one of my primary experiments that I was working on was one of the protein crystal growth experiments, uh, working in the field of macro crystallography. And while I'm not a scientist, I, I think I held my own in being able to uh, understand what the, what the goals and objectives were. And, uh, of course, the, the kinds of things we did in the name of science in those early flights uh, did we have any, you know, earth-shaking breakthroughs in, in terms of science? Uh, rarely, uh, but what we did was a lot of the precursor work that, of course, is being carried out, uh, and, and we are seeing those kinds of breakthroughs today on the International Space Station. But based on, on some of the, uh, uh, the work that we did in the early days of being able to kind of proof-of-concept type things for, uh, for what we did. So a very, very intensive flight. Um, we were oversubscribed. They... Uh, and, and one of the things you, you don't ever want to give a, you know, a, a crew of, uh, of uh, type A personalities is they, they gave us, uh, you know, 125% workload. Uh, and they said, just get as much as uh, done as you can. And, of course, when you're working with type A personalities, guess what? We accomplished 125%. Uh, uh, might have taken us uh, 19 hours instead of 16 hours during the day, but by gosh, we got her done. One of the things I did want to ask was with reference to the infamous IMAX camera. I know that was carried on board with uh, uh, footage going to, uh, I believe it was the IMAX presentation, Blue Planet. Did you, did you get to play with that at all? Or Oh, absolutely. That was, that was actually, and thanks for asking that, because that was one of the more uh, really fascinating parts of the mission. For one thing, I, I think most of us in the office had some leanings towards uh, you know, environmental impact and all that. I truly do, uh, and, and it's one of the things I carry through today. Uh, the, uh, the the land that I live on is a uh, certified natural wildlife habitat. I mean, I, I, I love working in the environmental issues, and, and it really gave you uh, an in-depth perception uh, and perspective on, on what's happening to this, uh, this planet we live on and the kinds of uh, decisions that are being made uh, in, 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 in science and technology and how that affects uh, uh, life on the earth. So it was a, a fantastic and uh, loved working with the IMAX folks. Again, a, uh, for those that aren't familiar with that, that's a, a company that's uh, headquartered in Canada, uh, but a great group of people to work with and uh, really helped uh, all of us on the crew to understand that complex uh, camera that we operated and, uh, and, and how to uh, maximize its use on, on orbit. Some, uh, some funny things that happened to that because just the nature of the camera itself um, had a very, very powerful motor in it. And uh, we learned very quickly on orbit that when you started the camera, you better have your feet anchored in uh, some foot loops someplace because as you started the motor on the camera, the torque of the motor would start you spinning around in the, in the weightless environment of space. So uh, very, I said very quickly, you, you learned you better have your feet anchored someplace before you uh, started operating the camera.
Now I know your 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 second flight STS thirty eight was a uh, was a DoD mission, so there isn't a whole lot you could talk about with with that. But uh, um, there's got to be at least one or two memories if if you you, know, you, you walking around the uh, the Kennedy Space Center and go into the Atlantis exhibit currently. There's got to be something where you, where you go ahead, you look at that bird, and go, "Yep, I remember that." And and you know, th there's got to be at least one or two fond memories that you can go ahead and expound on a little bit. At least you know maybe some stuff with the crew or something like that. Yeah, actually, it, it was, and and uh, a couple of things that you uh, you might not think about uh, in your as as you're uh, going through things, but uh, and and something that I I truly enjoyed since it was my second flight, the fact that we were a classified mission, we were totally off limits to the press, and and uh, and having gone through that, I mean, I, I actually enjoyed. I, I'll be I'd be less than candid if I didn't say, uh, hey, you know, everybody enjoys their. Uh, uh, there are a few moments of, uh, of fame and doing interviews on the TV and, and all that sort of thing. But once you've been through it, <laughs> you're over it. So uh, on that uh, on that second flight, the fact that uh, it was classified, we were totally off limits and, and didn't have to deal with the media at all. We just couldn't, no comment. Uh, we, we couldn't talk about it. Uh, and and then, again, the, 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 the mission was classified, the, the payload that, uh, that we carried. Uh, and, and as I like to tell people, uh, I can tell you we deployed a satellite. I just can't tell you what that satellite uh, does, but uh, it was a phenomenal mission. And uh, as as time evolved, uh, we were able to uh, to learn the details of of what uh, of what the mission was and what it accomplished. And uh, and it was uh, very very rewarding. Uh, uh, again, it's one of those things. Gosh, I wish I could tell you about it because it's fantastic, but. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't look good in pinstripes, so uh, we, we won't go, go that far. Well, I've seen you out of jail plenty. I've seen you um, at Astronaut Scholarship Foundation events. I have seen you at autograph signings for the, that was also sponsored by the Scholarship Foundation. And I even saw you hosting a conversation with myself and other people that were at the Astronaut Hall of Fame after we completed the astronaut training experience. And you're always an extremely outgoing, friendly, gregarious, you know, to everyone. You show up in your flight suit. And you, even after uh, the launch of STS-126, you were out there at the visitor center where my husband and son were that evening. And you were sort of the MC for the launch. What is it about those kinds of activities that keep you coming back and working with Kennedy Space Center. I know you live in the, in the Kennedy Space Center area, but you know most of other astronauts, they've moved on. What, what kept you there? I, I, I hope you've, uh, you've captured a little bit of this from the, uh, from the interview. Is, uh, I'm, I'm really super enthusiastic uh, about the, the space program and uh, not only the kinds of things we did on the shuttle, but where we're going in the future and, uh, and, and all the fantastic possibilities and a passion that I carry on now. Uh, I'm uh, uh, not sure whether you're aware of it or not, but I'm the chairman of the board of directors for the Kennedy Space Center Education Foundation. And, and you know, our, our mission is to continue to, uh, to get uh, our, our young people uh, across the communities uh, to keep them motivated in, in the science, technology, engineering, and math, and uh, not necessarily to be astronauts, but just to appreciate what we're doing and, and potentially uh, pursue careers in the technical fields. And, and that's what it's all about for me. I, I continue to be thrilled by the kinds of things we're doing, and, and I'm 
uh, honored to be asked to be a spokesperson uh, for those kinds of activities and to, to tell the general public about uh, the things we accomplished, uh, but more important, uh, the, the bright future that, uh, that lies ahead. I, I, our future lies in space, and, uh, and, uh, and it, it's, it means so much to us uh, here on Earth as we, we enjoy some of the technology uh, that, uh, that we have developed through the, the program over the years, and, and it's such an important part of our lives. And I'm just, uh, I'm just honored to uh, uh, be able to be asked uh, on occasion to be a spokesperson for, for those kinds of things. I'm, I'm, I'm challenged by the opportunity, but thrilled to be able to do it. I'm pretty sure if we weren't on mute, you'd be hearing a round of applause from all of us right now on that. Uh, especially since I am a STEM educator myself, working with the Challenger Centers as well as the Intrepid Museum in New York City. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, it really is rewarding. Um, so I know you do a lot of work down with the uh, Kennedy Space Center, uh, especially with STEM. So what was it like then seeing last year the Atlantis exhibit opening, especially after uh, having flown on Atlantis previously? What, did, what were your emotions? Was it joy? Was it this is a great teaching tool and inspiring? Or was it a little bit of resentment that I'm not flying it anymore? Well, actually, no, no resentment. Uh, I, I miss that aspect of it. Uh, and, and, of course... Uh, you know when when we flew that uh, last flight STS 135 and uh, and uh, that was the end of the program. Uh, I I got to admit I shed a tear. That that was uh, that was heart wrenching for me uh, to do that. But uh, again, it, it's thrilling to have Atlantis here. And uh, as that uh, the whole exhibit uh, Atlantis exhibit was being developed, uh, and, and of course being here in the community, uh, I, I got some. Uh, some sneak peeks at what was uh, was going on, and but had not had a chance to uh, to see the entire buildup, and uh, I was uh, got to be one of the first uh, individuals to go through and see that entire show, and when I did, and I don't want to give away too much of it for those that have never seen it because it's absolutely phenomenal, but when that whole process of going through the entrance. Uh, to the exhibit and, and and seeing the reveal for Atlantis, I had tears in my eyes. I really did. Uh, it brought back such fond memories, and uh, uh, but again, uh, elicited a a, uh, a joyful feeling that uh, we still have uh, that tremendous vehicle here for uh, people to come and see and uh, and understand a little bit of uh, of what we've been talking about this evening, the challenges uh, associated with the program, and and uh, the uh, many accomplishments that uh, were made, and, and uh, to be able to just get up close and personal with uh, with that uh, that fantastic vehicle, I I, I tell people I, that's my spaceship. Uh, there may be others who lay claim to that, but it's my spaceship. It really is. That's great because Mark and I were there for the uh, exhibit opening last year, and it is just phenomenal, especially the entrance that you were talking about. It's quite the exhibit, and if that doesn't inspire, you know, kids and adults of all ages, I guess, to um, to want to continue investing in our space program, and especially for the kids become a part of it, I don't know what will. Oh, it, that's that's really true, and uh, like I'll, I'll give you just a, a quick, uh, I, I did a, um, uh, a special tour for a, uh, a, a family, uh, grandparents, grandparents, uh, and then uh, down through the uh, sons and daughters and, uh, and the grandkids and the, and one of the grandchildren, a four-year-old uh, a boy from Jupiter, Florida, uh, came up to his grandfather after the uh, a after we'd gone on the tour and he said, "Grandpa, 
that was the best day of my life. And I'm like, wow. And I, I got to be a part of that. Uh, that. That's what you're trying to inspire. That's, that's what you want to hear from the young people. The best day of my life. That just gave me chills, sir. I mean, that's most sincerely. Uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up, sir, uh, is some of the things that I think every space enthusiast has ever run into since the end of the shuttle program. I'm going to bring, bring up an, an example of this that just got posted a while back ago. A friend of mine, Shannon Moore, uh, posted something on Twitter a few minutes before the show started saying that you know, she went to a, a market today and uh, where she lives in Austin, Texas, and she was wearing a, a NASA T-shirt, and one of the, the attendants at the market basically said, oh, they shut down about two years ago. No, I mean it. They're gone. And she was saying, no, no, that's not the case, but um, there, there's some funding issues going on and so on, but, but the guy just wouldn't budge. And I've run into that, too. I mean, I took my nephew last year uh, to, to City Field. I was wearing my NASA Wallops cap, and I got sort of the same reaction, but I pulled out my, my iPad and showed folks what was going on. How did, because of the problems that are going on with the program now, how do we who, who really, you know, believe the dream is alive and well combat that public, that public perception? of all of this and, and what's going on currently? Well, you know, uh, I, I've got to admit, I, I've thought about that a lot. And uh, uh, in, in some part, you, you can't blame, uh, blame the individuals uh, because what you're, what you're really saying is uh, they're not well-informed. They, they simply don't know. When I, uh, when I give uh, public uh, talks about the program, I, I usually start off with something like the space shuttle program has ended. The space program has not. We still have people aboard the International Space Station uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and, and accomplishing some, some really great things. So the space program is alive and well. But so why does that happen? You know, and I, I don't want to beat up on, <laughs> on any particular organization or anything like that, but it, it's, it's lack of positive information. That's why I'm so thrilled to, to be able to, uh, to be talking to Talking Space and, and, uh, and continuing to enlighten people and, and, and encourage our youngsters uh, about this because it's just simply lack of information, I think, and, uh, and, and the apathy that, that develops out of that, that people just aren't aware of the kinds of things that are doing and the phenomenal uh, accomplishments that we're making uh, aboard the uh, uh, the International Space Station and, and continuing to learn more about living and working in that environment and bringing benefits back down here to Earth. Uh, you know, some phenomenal accomplishments, and, and yet it, it's not the kinds of things that sells newspapers or uh, sells headlines. It's just, uh, it, it's, you know, we're, I guess, because we, uh, we don't have a uh, current launch capability from the United States, although I think we're going to get there in, in fairly short order, thanks to the uh, uh, commercial space efforts, and, uh, uh, and and we'll get back to having a U.S. launch capability, and I think that will, again, pick up uh, uh, the enthusiasm, I think, of the general public. And we just need to, uh, and hopefully, the commercial companies that are doing it will capitalize on that uh, to the extent that they they really will because they want to promote their product, I, I think they will 
will do a, a bang-up job uh, of being able to publicize what's going on. One of the things that are going on right now, well, obviously, is is the NASA budget, and and also it just seems like we don't have a clear direction or or a clear you know mission to go ahead and expound on what you were you were talking about over having a clear mission and having a clear purpose. Um, if you were in charge today, what would be your sort of recipe or, or your, your magic elixir for, for getting us back on a sustainable path and, and getting people to, to go ahead and scream uh, uh, to, uh, you know, from the mountaintops about our space program again? Well, I, I think you just have to focus on a realistic goal, what, whatever that would be. And uh, if, if I had to look, uh, and it's, it's always easy to criticize what's, what's going on, and, I, and I, I don't mean to be overly critical of that, uh, but we've been uh, wandering around a bit in terms of the space program. You know, we're, we're going to go to the moon. No, we're going to go out and capture an asteroid, and then we're going to put that in, in, a, in a Lagrangian orbit and go, go visit the asteroid. And No, no, really, we want to go to Mars. Let's use our, our best minds, and, and, uh, and, and they certainly exist. Uh, pick a realistic goal uh, and, and then pursue it. And, uh, and I, I think actually, again, private industry, I think, will help us do that as, as we continue along this, this pace of, uh, uh, of commercial space and, and uh, being able to uh, show the kinds of things that we can do in, in space and, uh, and, again, regain that focus and, and have a, a positive direction and then get the, uh, uh, the kind of um, publicity, uh, if you will, that, uh, that, that supports it and, and get, uh, get the general public uh, uh, back. I, I think the, I've got to admit, uh, you know, you talk to people who are outside the program and they're going like, so what is NASA doing? Yeah, there's budget constraints. Come on, pull it together and, and let's pick a, a well-defined focus uh, and, and work within the budget and, and go, go get it done. So I know you did work with, um, while you are with Boeing, related to the International Space Station. So what do you see then as the future of the ISS? Well, I think, I think the ISS has a very, very bright future. And, of course, we're continuing to, uh, uh, to do some phenomenal things. Uh, the biggest challenge there is that uh, in terms of, uh, and I'll go back to you know, publicizing what's going on, uh, we, we've had some, uh, some breakthrough things happen in, in terms of the work that we're doing on the International Space Station. Uh, the time lag between having a breakthrough development, going through peer review, uh, and if you're doing like in, in the biomedicine or something like that, going through FDA testing, you're talking about a, a four to six year cycle. And, and you know, it, you, you can't overly anticipate that. So you've got to wait through that process until you, you can finally bring a product to market because that, that's, uh, like it or not, that's, that's the focus uh, of today, return on investment. Uh, you know, what, what's in it for me? Uh, you know, where, where's the, you know, how much money are we going to make on the program? And, and that's, uh, that seems to be a, an overriding factor. Okay, accept that. Uh, let, let's figure out how to work within those constraints and, uh, but, but continue to focus on uh, the breakthrough technology we have and, uh, and keep the ISS flying both as a, an international laboratory as well as a test bed for, uh, for future flights, and, uh, and, uh, and I think, again, this is one area where commercial space is going to be, uh, I, I think, potentially step into the forefront of, uh, of what's happening. Uh, I've read some numbers recently. There's a $2 billion market just in the U.S. 
uh, for flying experiments into space from both from industry and uh, and academia and uh, and you know that's that's a challenge and and, and uh, people like SpaceX and Orbital Sciences and Sierra Nevada and Boeing and everybody who's participating in the program. They see that as a marketplace, and, uh, and they're going to go after it. And I think as we do that, we're going to continue to see uh, tremendous growth in what we're doing in space. Exactly, and from a STEM point, I think once we see that growth, then uh, the next generation will have a reason to continue. Because like, I was talking to um, Neil deGrasse Tyson this past weekend, and we were talking about this, and he said that people aren't really interested anymore because, you know, it's like, okay, we're very destination-focused of we're going to Mars or we're going to the moon. Whereas if, for example, the things coming out of the International Space Station, if there was a headline a week of some major discovery that got people interested in wanting to learn more about it, then we might be able to say there's still a program and that we still want to encourage kids and that there is still a future in this business. Well, absolutely so. And, you know, as I think you're all aware, I, I, uh, I spend a lot of time uh, working with uh, uh, the young people, and there's no lack of enthusiasm uh, among the students out there. And, 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 and again, not trying to get everybody to be an astronaut. Some do, some don't. But uh, you talk to the kids who, who want to be an engineer uh, and on working on the project of, of putting the first humans on, on Mars, or both uh, young men and young women who are fascinated by the field of robotics or, or looking at the, uh, the kinds of the discoveries we're making today with, uh, uh, with Hubble and, and uh, in the future with uh, uh, the next generation telescopes. There is no shortage of enthusiasm out there among the young people. It's just it doesn't make the headlines. Exactly, and you bring up a good point there that it's not all about being an astronaut because as you've been talking about this whole time, the emphasis of the team and to convey that message of that the astronauts, they may be the ones on the front of the newspaper, but it's the whole team that gets them there. That's, I think, very important. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. And you, I'll tell you what, you, uh, if, if, you, uh, if you haven't seen it, you need to take a look at the, uh, uh, the patch we designed for the STS-38 mission. And, and it's, a, it's, it's hopefully a good point to, to wrap this up on because uh, it, it focuses on just exactly uh, what you talked about. The, if you have a copy of the patch in front of you, it's got uh, um, two orbiters on it, one that's right side up and flying into the sunlight. And that, that orbiter uh, represented the five of us on the crew who, who got to do all of the really exciting parts and, and, uh, and, and actually fly the mission. Underneath that upright orbiter that's flying into the sunlight is a, an upside-down orbiter uh, that's in, in the gray shadows in the background. And, and that represents the thousands and thousands of people who were part of that team but didn't get the notoriety, don't get the headlines, don't actually get to fly in space, but were, if you will, look at the patch from this point, that upside-down orbiter is literally supporting the orbiter that's flying into space. And that was the whole, mission, whole thought behind the, the patch as we put it together, is uh, acknowledging uh, not only what we're doing on the mission, uh, but the thousands and thousands of people who contributed to it. And, and those people are still out there today, and, and they, they may not be supporting a spaceflight mission, uh, but they're the young people that are going into those kinds of engineering and scientific fields and are, are ready, willing, and able to step up and, and assume that role uh, as we continue our, our progress into space. Yes, indeed. That will be in the show notes. And that leads us to our famous final question that we have here on Talking Space. We ask this of all of our guests, and um, we call it the most difficult question of the interview. Are you prepared? I'm ready. 
So if people want to know more about you and the work that you're doing with STEM and at the Kennedy Space Center, where can people go to find out more? <laughs> that is the most difficult question. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I don't have a personal website. Uh, we are in the process of, uh, of building a website for the Kennedy Space Center Education Foundation. So it's a, it's a promise that I'll lay out there that said uh, very, very shortly uh, we will have a website uh, that will highlight uh, what, that, uh, what our, uh, our foundation is doing and, uh, and, and give, uh, give people and I a chance to, uh, uh, to see the kinds of things that we're, we're trying to put into place to uh, uh, excite this next generation of uh, scientists, engineers, and explorers. And we'll be sure and promote it because I know there will be a lot of interest, and I've already heard people uh, asking where they can find out more, and that sounds like a great resource. And, sir, if you, if, if you wouldn't mind coming back, if you, if you have anything to promote with reference to the organization or once the website's rolled out, maybe you want to come back and talk to us about that. Well, yeah, I'd love to do that. Uh, again, we're, we're working very, very closely with the folks at, uh, uh, at the visitor center there to, uh, uh, to, to get this all pulled together uh, because we, we are working hand-in-hand with that. Uh, also, uh, working with the uh, Astronaut Memorial Foundation because they have a, uh, a, a nice uh, educational outreach as well. In fact, we're looking at per, perhaps partnering with them uh, to, again, focus on the educational aspects of it. it it's actually part of the charter of the uh, Memorial Foundation as well. So, uh, working with, uh, with uh, Senator Thad Altman, uh, who's the, uh, the current uh, executive director for the uh, Astronaut Memorial Foundation and so we're we're looking at some very very exciting times ahead and, and I'll look forward to uh, getting this pulled together and getting back with you. Thank you so much for joining us Bob Springer here on Talking Space. Well thanks a lot appreciate it. Once again a huge huge thank you to Bob Springer for coming on the show and uh, thank you to everybody who joined us here tonight thank you for joining us Gene McCulka. Yeah, and one of the things I do want to point out is uh, Bob Springer kept pointing out that he was just simply the tip of the spear. And it kind of reminded me, too, of uh, what another astronaut from Ohio, uh, the late Neil Armstrong, used to say. Everything was just built on, you know, him, you know, the astronauts were just lucky enough to fly, but they had hundreds of thousands of people supporting them. And, and Bob Springer's shoot, he made sure that those folks un- got their, their moment in the sun. So thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Oh, yes. Thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. So many things to be thankful for talking with Bob and, and surprisingly looking at the STS-38 mission patch and listening to him describe it uh, was just a, a, a really special moment. And uh, I want to thank him and uh, everybody that's part of that support system. Oh, yes, for sure. There's a lot that goes on to everything in the spaceflight program, and it's not just the astronauts, although they do make for great guests on our show. And thank you as well for joining us, Gina Hurley. Well, it was my pleasure. I've had the uh, good fortune to meet Bob Springer a few times in different events and so forth, all at Kennedy Space Center, and he's just a gentleman and an outstanding guy and, you know, wonderful to hear how you know, an environmentalist and just knowing how much our earth is so fragile and gentle and who better to tell that story than someone that has seen its whole from space. So just a pleasure to speak with him this evening. Yes, indeed. A big thank you to Bob Springer. And of course, since this is our 200th episode, we do have to thank everybody who helped get us here to episode number 200. That includes the entire team of Talking Space, who we just talked to. 
In addition, Michael Forrester and the entire team over at Astronomy FM, Jason Ryan and the entire team over at the Spaceflight Group, and, um, oh yes, most importantly, you, the listeners, because as much as we love hearing our own voices, we love hearing yours more, so we thank you very much for listening, and to everybody who has ever commented on an episode, shared a link to it, emailed us with a question, or just listened, and given it a download, given us a chance, whether it be one episode or 200 of them, we thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll continue to stay with us as we celebrate five years on the air. But until then, we'll be back next week with episode 201, and we hope you will too. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.